I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Fifth and Mission. It's not in your head. Cars are getting broken into more often than they used to in San Francisco and Oakland. A lot more. Since 2010, car break-ins have soared in these two cities, reaching an average of 80 per day in San Francisco. And that's even while other parts of the state have seen decreases. Why? Economic shifts, policy changes, and arrest rates could all be factors in the increase, as well as the things people leave in their cars. This huge wave has prompted city officials to hold hearings and the police department to announce new efforts to step up enforcement. More officers will be patrolling hotspots, and the police say they'll be using bait cars to catch thieves in the act. But car break-ins are not a new issue. As it turns out, this is literally a century-old problem. We know that because data reporter Susie Nielsen, in the course of reporting a story, went looking for the first car break-in ever documented by the Chronicle. Culture critic Peter Hartlob dived into the archives and struck deja vu pay dirt. In 1918, San Francisco officials were tearing their hair out about thefts from cars. And while it wasn't iPads and laptops being stolen, in many ways the current surge in thefts mirrors what the city was seeing 100 years ago. Cops were confounded, drivers were getting duped, But eventually, then as now, some solutions came into focus. Peter Hartlob and Susie Nielsen are joining me today to talk about what's behind these astonishingly similar waves of car break-ins and to what extent old remedies might apply again. Susie, thanks for talking with me. Thank you for having me. Peter, good to have you here. Really glad to be here. Thank you. So Susie, you have probed many a crime trend. How significant is the increase in car break-ins in Oakland and San Francisco over the last decade or so? Sure. So I have indeed probed many crime trends over my time at the Chronicle. Um, And so I'm going to start by telling you something that you might not believe. For about nine years in the late 90s and through to the early 2000s, Sacramento actually had a higher car break-in rate than San Francisco. San Francisco's car break-in rate has always been high, but it hasn't always been crazy high. It's been more on par with any kind of major city in California. But then starting around 2011, we see this really kind of anomalous, wacky trend in San Francisco where car break-ins go up one year, they go up another year, and they keep going up until in 2017, you have an average of 80 reported car break-ins a day. And that is not counting many car break-ins because, as you know, many people do not report these. I personally have been broken into twice, didn't report either time. In my two years of covering crime trends for the Chronicle, I have never seen anything like this. San Francisco and Oakland both have this huge spike starting in 2011, and no other cities have it in California. It's very weird. And we don't have detailed data and graphics available from the 1910s that we could compare this to kind of on a one-to-one basis. But Peter, you did see evidence of a wave of car thefts in that era in the Chronicle's archives. Cars hadn't really been on the scene for much more than a decade, I think, at the time that we saw this trend. What was happening at the time that set the city up for that crime spree? Yeah, so the early 1900s, like 1905, there were no cars in the city. I mean, there were very few. There were 500 registered automobiles in all of the state. Then in 10 years, we go to 191,000 registered automobiles. The Model T comes out in 1908, which makes the automobile accessible to the middle class. And then you have hard-topped sedans. So people start storing stuff in their car. 
suddenly there's something to steal, but there's no locks yet. <laughs> so this is kind of just like the perfect <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> car break-in opportunity. I'm sure the car break-in people now would love to go back because it was a perfect time to break into cars. Mm. And tires are getting stolen. Tires are very expensive. So we had data back then. We didn't have a data team at the Chronicle yet. But we know that in September 1918 alone, spare tire theft exceeded $10,000 in losses, which that's more than $260,000 today. So people were very alarmed. This was a sudden epidemic of crime. That's what we put in our headline in the Chronicle. It was a very big deal. Just so people can picture this, you've already painted a great picture of these hardtop sedans with no locks on the door. Tires. Tires were being stolen. These are spare tires or are these like old-timey automobiles up on cinder blocks? (laughs) No, it was a spare tire. And you needed your spare tires back then. Sometimes people had two, but they were also not locked. So they're just kind of hanging. If you look at old cars from the 1910s, I mean, the the tires are kind of hanging on the outside of the car and they're kind of ornamental. So you can just kind of walk by and grab one. I mean, it's not a real difficult bar for a thief back then. And that, again, created a lot of opportunities for people who wanted to make a quick buck. So in a similar vein, a few things changed around 2010 that might have contributed to the dramatic rise in car break-ins we've seen since then. Susie, you looked at a number of possible factors that could explain this, and two of them are somewhat related to technology. What was happening? I spoke to so many people about what might have caused this weird spike in the data that looked almost fake to me. And everybody kind of cited a confluence of different factors that were happening all at the same time. So first of all, you have the proliferation of personal electronic devices. iPhones and iPads are starting to be introduced and brought into the market around that time. So for instance, the iPad was introduced in 2010, and by 2015, over one-third of Americans had one. Wow. Yeah, I know. It was very fast. We all love our little devices. And we also, in San Francisco, like to leave them in our cars. Mm. And... In San Francisco, as I found out, a lot of people who break into cars will use Bluetooth or hotspot technology to find these devices in cars. And the other thing that happened was that the rise of e-commerce outlets like eBay and Amazon made it a lot easier for people to unload the goods that they got. So in the olden days, you'd have to go to an in-person market, like maybe like a black market. So maybe on a busy street in San Francisco, maybe around a BART station, you could sell your goods there. But now you can drive out of San Francisco, be out of range of the cops, go to a warehouse somewhere in the East Bay and unload it with what they call a fencer who can sell your goods online for you. And you can get a lot more money for them. And the other thing is that the number of rich people in San Francisco grew by quite a lot during this period. So from 2010 to 2019, the incomes of the highest 10% of San Franciscans rose by $250,000, which is you know a lot more high-earning people here, while the incomes of the lowest income 10% only grew by about $4,000. So it's a big difference. So there's a lot more wealthy people clustered here. And then people who do not have that wealth saying, huh, all these people have all this stuff and it's pretty easy to get. Mm -hmm. So 
So these times in city history are actually similar in a lot more ways other than just this this car break-in phenomenon. 1918 also happened to see a flu pandemic, for one thing. But in the stories about thefts from cars, Peter, you also found really familiar narratives about, A, how brazen these thefts were, also where it was happening, how the crimes were being carried out, and B, like the grander narrative about San Francisco, what this said about San Francisco as a city. What did you find? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of parallels. People were frustrated with their city leaders. They were frustrated with their police. There was a lot of corruption before the 1906 earthquake. And I think people were still a little bit suspicious about the people leading the city. So I went down to the archive. Susie actually asked me, can you find the first car break in? And The first story I found that was a car break-in was like a funny story. It was about literally the handsomest police officer on the force got his spare tires stolen while he stopped for five minutes. (laughs) And, you know, the Chronicle kind of the the writing is kind of making fun of it and chiding him. This is a quote. Now, it is only natural for a thief to steal accessories from an ordinary car, the Chronicle reported. But when he steals from a car bearing the legend SFPD, he is slightly exceeding his ethics. (laughs) So so they're being kind of cheeky. It didn't stay cheeky for long. 1917, 1918, you start getting toward the holidays. People are afraid to go to the theater district, which is on Mm -hmm. Market Street. They're leaving their car in the garage. They're not going out and shopping. It's affecting the city in the same ways that we're seeing now. And I think one of the peaks was the police commissioner, who's the person who reports police statistics to the mayor and the board of supervisors on Thanksgiving, ran in to, I don't know, grab a turkey, grab some flowers on Market Street, and both of his spare tires were stolen. So I I think there was a sense right now where it's affecting the city and people started getting alarmed really fast. Mm -hmm. Is there, speaking of police officials' cars getting broken into, parallels specifically to catalytic converters here? Because that's kind of like the sought-after car part that's getting stolen off of every car, and not even law enforcement vehicles are safe. We did see, I think, a law enforcement car get its catalytic converter stolen. Is it just like really history repeating itself (laughs) exactly? (laughs) Well, no catalytic converters, but There were spare tires that were really, really popular, and tires were extremely expensive back then. Mm -hmm. Back then, a tire blowing was a big deal. You needed one or two spares on your car, and, and they were very expensive. They're still figuring out how to do the mass production thing. Another thing, you know, the cars are really cheap. So suddenly they're afforded by the middle class. Well, in 1905, no one could afford a car, but... Now, the thieves could boost a car and find a car. They were a little bit cheaper, a little bit easier to get. So the thieves can drive around now. And we saw evidence of almost the same MO as today, where thieves are driving around in a car. One guy's driving. Another guy jumps out, grabs his stuff quick, and the police can't get there in time. Talking about this kind of new market with these like highly valued tires, Peter, reminds me of something that I learned about catalytic converters when I was researching this story. Catalytic converter thefts are different from, you know, break-ins because you're taking a car apart. But just like with the iPad thing where there's this kind of new market incentive being created, this is these are like economically rational actors, I think, in this system. But just like that, there is this with catalytic converter thefts, which started soaring around the pandemic, 
there was this big surge in the market value of a lot of the rare metals in these catalytic converters. And experts are actually saying now that the market price of some of these metals is going down, they're thinking there might be a decrease in catalytic converter thefts. Mm. So it's kind of market trends are explaining a lot of these kind of changes over time that Peter and I are finding. At this point, cars are not a new invention and neither are smartphones. So could the 2010 car break-in wave have been a matter of policy? Susie will unpack that after a break. You're listening to Fifth Admission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. We've been talking about how certain phenomena like cars becoming affordable and smartphones becoming popular might have contributed to a huge rise in car break-ins in San Francisco and Oakland, but neither of those things are new anymore, and yet the problem persists. Susie, you looked into how a state ballot measure that changed the threshold at which misdemeanors become felonies might have contributed, and you also considered whether it might be linked to prosecution policies. Do those explain the surge? Yeah, so I spoke with a lot of people who kind of lay the blame at the foot of Proposition 47, which, as you said, it was passed in 2014, and it reclassified a lot of crimes that were previously considered felonies to misdemeanors, including thefts of items that are under $950 in value. And so that includes a lot of stuff that's taken out of a car. Like if you steal an iPhone or iPad, that's probably in the hundreds of dollars, but it might not get to the $1,000 range. And so people are like, oh, well, nobody's getting punished for these crimes anymore. So I did some research into this, and I've just talked to a lot of folks about this kind of stuff in the past. And as it turns out, Prop 47 did have an impact likely on overall car break-in rates at the state level. So researchers found a link between a rise in larceny theft, which includes break-ins, and the passage of Prop 47. And that was kind of a statewide 9% spike. But it doesn't fully explain this really weird localized spike in San Francisco and Oakland because that started happening three to four years before Prop 47 was enacted. And it also is just a 9% spike, whereas San Francisco car break-in rates like doubled or even tripled over time. So the other thing I looked at, because a lot of people said, you know, The DA at the time, George Gascon, had an impact on break-in rates. And he took office in 2011, and he actually authored Prop 47 or was a co-author. So he was seen as this kind of progressive guy. But looking over time, it doesn't appear that these DAs have had much of an impact. Break-in rates rose and fell under Gascon. They fell dramatically under Chesa Boudin, who's considered to be the most progressive DA we've ever had. They started rising again under current DA, Brooke Jenkins. And Previous research has said that, you know, the policies of district attorneys don't really have much of an impact on overall crime rates. And when you think about the fact that, like, fewer than 1% of reported car break-ins end in an arrest, almost none of these cases are even making it to the DA's office. So really, the what most people said was that the impact of an arrest is actually much more powerful on people who are breaking into cars, because that is a real punishment, but nobody's really getting arrested for these. 
That is an extremely low percentage, and it hasn't really been much higher than that. It was something like 2% in 2011. Why is that arrest rate so low? Well, okay, so I talked to a guy who works at a car window repair store. His name was Ben Wu, and he works in the Tenderloin, and he has seen these break-ins happen a lot. And I think he summarized it quite well when he said it takes like four seconds to break the window and another five seconds to grab the bags. And if you're in a car and it takes you 10 seconds to break a window and grab some stuff, you are out of there before a person who's watching can even react. These break-ins are really, really hard for cops to make arrests in, and they've gotten harder over time because, as I said, like, it's much easier to offload these goods. It's easier for cops to catch somebody when they're trying to sell their stuff. So it's always been low. It's gotten lower over time. Another parallel, Susie, a century ago, mm-hmm. the Chronicle actually hired a former, I think former, mm-hmm. automobile thief to write a column what? called <laughs> called Buy an Automobile Thief. <laughs> and this uh. is in the middle of the epidemic when it was all the Chronicle was writing about mm-hmm. were, were these car thefts. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, like it was supposed to, your mm-hmm. sister read it and I think come away with like, oh, wow, this is bad a bad thing to do. But I read it and I'm like, this is so easy. The way the automobile thief (laughs) described stealing someone's luggage from in front of Market Street in 1919 made me think like, why would you not do this? I mean, I think like it's such an easy crime to get away with. But I also think there's a lot of crimes happening. I think if one person's caught, it might be a person who's maybe committed a lot of thefts and, and added a lot to that data. Yeah, well, I was going to say we should bring that columnist back, but now I think (laughs) probably not a good idea for the city. But yeah, as you said, Peter, I talked to the SFPD for this story, of course. And one of the things that they said is that the low clearance rate really doesn't reflect the work that the police are doing, because if they can arrest just one person, but that one person is like at the center of some of these really organized theft rings, then they can make a huge impact on the number of car break-ins that happen in the city. Peter, you just mentioned this incredible column, but you also wrote that the Chronicle shifted in the early 1920s from histrionics to education. What strategies did San Franciscans start implementing to get this problem under control? Certainly, this mirrors a lot of things that I see in the archive and what I see right now in San Francisco, which is the first reaction to a problem is to point fingers and blame people and get upset about it. And it's understandable. It's human nature. But people are blaming the police. They're blaming the mayor. The Chronicle is certainly back then going on a crusade and pointing fingers. Then a point happens where a lot more slowly, a lot of different organizations, a lot of different people start working on solutions. And they're not like overnight solutions, but the car industry starts creating locking doors, which is something they should have done in the beginning. (laughs) Keyed locks start, locksmiths love that. The police presence shifted. And there's reporting in the Chronicle talking about how they're adding more people to the auto detail, putting them from 5 to 1 a.m. and putting them in supercharged, souped up cars so that they could get people. and Like in car chases? Like in car chases. Oh yeah, God. I mean, they had a better car and a faster car than the people who were stealing the tires. And again, the Chronicle 
we're also running stories by insurance people and by car dealership owners who are talking about safety precautions. Don't leave stuff in your car. Padlock your tires. At one point, one guy recommended branding your tires like cattle. So if someone steals them, because they were filing <laughs> like off with the your ID name? numbers. Yeah, with like your name or like your, your, you your know, personal sigil. Yeah, <laughs> something like that, you know. So um, a lot of education. I think people kind of figured out, just like right now, when I whenever I see someone new or when I'm working on a story and I talk to someone who's a tourist, the first thing I say to any tourist is everything you're hearing about San Francisco is not true Except the car breaking thing. <laughs> yeah. Don't leave stuff in your car. <laughs> um, so I think that was happening back then. There was education. There were changes in the law. And pretty quickly, this big problem became a much smaller problem. What changes in the law? So it became a law that you could not file off the identification number on tires. I thought that was a really big <laughs> one. And also oh. at the time that these cars started proliferating, they had rules that pawnbrokers had to give a report to police every night, but the secondhand car dealerships didn't. So the police pushed to have secondhand car dealerships giving them reports and letting them know what's going on. Just communication between the police and the places where the stolen material would end up. Little things, but it made a big difference. Yeah. And we have seen that in modern efforts to curb this problem as well. Susie, SFPD has openly said that it needs to prioritize violent crime over car break-ins. That makes sense. And it's short-staffed, so dedicating a ton of officers to the car break-in beat probably isn't going to fly. But there are some police strategies and some other just like interventions that have worked, right? Yeah, so I really wanted to find instances of possible solutions or partial solutions, because I think a lot of the stories have been just like, this is such a big problem. No one knows what to do about it. And the solutions I found were very unsexy, but they do appear to have a lot of promise. I think the number one thing, honestly, is that people need to know that they cannot leave stuff in their cars. And San Francisco needs to do a better job of saying that over and over and over again. In 2017, the city launched this initiative called ParkSmart, which was a multi-agency initiative that involved doing a ton of flyering around these touristy areas where car break-ins are really, really high, doing a lot of like PSAs about this issue, distributing pamphlets in these areas. So in one initiative in 2018, the city took this parking garage that had a really high rate of break-ins and installed surveillance cameras, new fencing, had officers operating there, and just did a lot of kind of deterrence work. And it really, really worked. There was an 83% drop in burglaries in just a few months. Wow. In that, yeah. I mean, when when police do very focused work, it, it really does have an effect. So also in Vallejo, police did this very targeted operation over the holiday season where they targeted yet you know, another garage that was really known for having high break-in rates. And over the course of the assignment, they only made five arrests, but break-ins still went down by 40%. Mm. So again, only a few arrests and a lot of kind of cutting it off at the source makes a really big deal or makes a really big difference. Earlier this month in August, the police held a press conference with the district attorney's office where they talked about how they're going to start deploying a lot more officers, visible officers, to 
high break-in areas. So that's like Fisherman's Wharf and other really touristy areas where there are a lot of break-ins. And they're going to raise awareness more with tourists and other people who have not learned the lesson the hard way yet, like me. (laughs) But yeah, so that's the attempt. It sounds like this is you know, a big problem, but maybe a fixable one. We've done it before. Yeah, I, I think a lot of things that people really panic about. And again, the Chronicle Archive gives us this lesson again and again and again. It's not going to last forever. I remember, you know, the pandemic of 1918 was a great lesson for the pandemic of 2020 and that it feels like this is going to go on forever and the world is forever changed. But things get back to normal. And um, you you find this throughout time. I just think we have to be smart about attacking the problem in a smart way and education and everybody working together. And learn from history. Learn from history. history. That's uh, that's our lesson. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mm Peter Hartlob is the Chronicle's culture critic, and Susie Nielsen is a data reporter. Find their stories on car break-ins at sfchronicle.com. Thanks to Sarah Feldberg for editing this episode, Gary Baca for mixing the audio, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>